From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and, importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. about to listen to our new show the groundsman conversations which is brought to you by sports digital sports digital is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders agencies and brands that brings your story to life within immersive exciting easy to create proposals and presentations used by more than 50 percent of teams in the top leagues in the u.s sports digital's technology enables partners to ditch powerpoint and keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigital.com to book your demo. Well, welcome, everybody, to another Groundsman Conversations. Joining me, as always, my fellow slackers, Charles Morgan and Roger Mitchell. Charles, how are you, mate? I'm good, I'm good. It um, feels like the start of a, a new school year, September, autumn autumn chill, a bit of leaves coming on, but I've been sort of driven faintly bonkers. You know how in July and August... Instagrammers just post endlessly about their holidays and the the wonderful life they lead and and after a while it gets a bit oh god everyone's somewhere I want to be and just when I thought it was safe to go back in the water September happens and everyone starts sending pictures of their kids going back to school and university and how proud they are and it does my chump in so that's what's <laughs> um, getting me a bit vexed at the moment excellent Rog, what's uh, what's upsetting you this week? Nothing, nothing. It's, <laughs> nothing. It's all, we just come back it's from all week good. Two weeks, <laughs> two weeks. Um, yeah, um, still thinking of those houses I saw there and a place to maybe uh, retire to the seaside. Um, yeah, it was beautiful. It's really good, really, really good. And how about you, Grant? Where have you? Where are you these days? Oh, I've been all over the place, mate. I've been all over. I had an aborted trip to Greece. That was my main excitement. Um, I went to and Greece. What stage and, did you have to abort? Uh, two days into a week. Oh no! Two days into a week. So yes, it was a, a bit unfortunate, but but it were two very nice days. I have to say that much. <laughs> that was a long way to go. For yeah, two but you days did. In Greece, that meant you did get to the the cottage. You you managed to see your team. That, that yes, worked. Yes, yes, yes. Um, with my dad, which was um, magnificent, absolutely magnificent. And I have to say, Rog, for you, mate. Um, the um, you know the atmosphere. The Premier League is um, is amazing. I mean, it really is. I went to uh, went to the cottage, and it was it was just fantastic. I mean, you know, Fulham obviously, if Fulham if Fulham win a game this year, it's like winning a cup final. So it's it's you, the nerves are jangling the whole way through it. And you know, we were winning two one and clinging on at the end there. But um, it was just fantastic. Great atmosphere. Really, really enjoyed it. Grant, do you think there's any chance we could ever do a podcast from Craven Cottage in the new hotel or, or in the apartments? Might be quite fun. We could yeah, do sure. one during the fucking game, Grant, uh, Giles. <laughs> you know what, I, I, I was waiting for that. I was waiting for that. Not Tuesday night, you couldn't, Rog. Not Tuesday night, my friend. <laughs> I'm only pulling your leg. You're a great team this year. What, well, seventh, that, eighth? That might be stretching it a bit, but hey, listen, no, there's no, a good chance we'll stay up. That's that's the, that was the objective. 100%. 100%. Mid-table would do us very nicely. Well, listen, gents, before uh, our guest joins us, what's got you, apart from Instagrammers and school photos, Giles, what's got you 
energised in the world of sport this week? Well, I listened to your excellent goal on goal and listened to your um, your rant about the 100. And I, I wasn't sure where I was on that because I went to the 100 last year, um, which is, as, as we all know, for listeners who are not from England, is the English, English Cricket Board's sort of version of 2020 that they actually invented themselves and then decided to have something else. And I've been watching quite critically, and I am a cricket fan, and I have come to the conclusion that you're both bang on. Um, I'm not sure of the point of the 100. Um, I, I love what it's doing for, for girls being introduced to the sport, etc. And the final was quite good. The men's final was, was, was pretty entertaining. But I, I realised as I was watching telly that I didn't understand the scoring, the point of the scoring, and then I didn't know what I was watching. And sport for me is there's always got to be context and... and um, there's got to be a sense of why and there has to be a sense of binary and, and the best of the best. And so I'm afraid with a heavy heart, I'm, I've come down on the side of not sure what the 100 is and let's go back to 2020. So that's sort of been my sporting diet of, of the last few days. Well, I it, allow me to read you a headline that I picked out, Giles, from uh, The Telegraph last week. The headline is this. If you thought the 100 was bad, wait until you see the 60. Now, I don't know if you're aware Go of this. On. The 60, obviously, the number six and then I-X-T-Y because, hey, that's cool. Um, and it's uh, it will be the quickest format ever seen for professional cricketers when the Sky X 60 tournament begins in the West Indies. The equal shortest being the same length as a 10-over match, but quicker. Instead of changing ends after each over, 30 balls will be bowled from one end followed by 30 from the other. Oh, no. Each inning should take about 45 minutes. This is exactly what I said to you, Roger. It's six-minute six oh abs. God. That's what this is. Wait for it. Coming soon, the 40, and then the 30, and then it's going to be who can get the most runs off a single ball, and we can all go home in 15 minutes. Why are you doing that in a Scottish accent? I have no idea. It's not <laughs> worth it. I have no idea, Roger. No idea at all. But oh it's, this is it's the thin end of the wedge. The thin end of the wedge. It's Jimmy and I... We're filming up in Scotland, and uh, we watched a bit of the of the hundred. And it was just it's just nonsense. This is utter nonsense. It's it's not cricket, Giles. I'm afraid. No, uh, it isn't. And 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 too much tinkering and all the rest of it. And I understand people need to change things in order to seek investment and all the rest of it. But enough now. Enough now. Surely. Roger, what do you got? Well, you must have watched a lot of sport. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I thought that was, I think that's good. You know, the, the, the debate about the hundreds good. And as I said the last time, I do have a lot of sympathy for the people that are trying to innovate. To, so you're not going to hear me unload on them. But I wanted to talk a little bit about, about rugby. Um, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk these days about the, the financial difficulties of the, the rugby clubs. At the same time, people talking about the really, really challenged governance in the sport and it seems to getting more and more complex, finding it over a calendar. And we talked about this two or three pods ago, but you know, you know, sometimes I can get a wee bit, oh, it's only football and everything else a joke. I don't think that's the case with rugby. And you know why? I think these days, every sport, to come back to what you were saying about the, the context of the 100, every sport needs a narrative, a why, a why, if you want to put it that way. And I think rugby has got that, you know, um, it's like the sport for the men we would all like to be, you know, these are extraordinary pieces of masculine. I know there's a women's game now, but I'm only talking about the men's game. 
every time you watch a rugby game, you think, God, look at them. They just get on with it, you know. And then you saw the one at the weekend, they were fighting on the pitch and then they were having a drink at the end afterwards, those two. I, I just think the upside for rugby is so big in, in, in that brand, that brand of this is what we are, fair play, hard, you know, proper male values. And then you see the, the financial chaos at the clubs and their balance sheets. And, you know, I feel it's screaming out. And CAVC were meant to be the person. But can you tell me, Giles, what's going on there? Well, what you said about the, the sort of the values, the spirit, the, 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 the construction of the people who play rugby and the spirit of the game, particularly beers afterwards, and beat the crap out of someone for 80 minutes and then go and have a beer with them. I mean, ice hockey has that, I guess, to an extent. But there aren't many sports that share it to quite the same level. And it's those values, funnily enough, that are one of the reasons why, particularly in, 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 in the UK, but also in France, that sponsorship has never been very difficult for those big brands to get behind because the values are values that people tend to gravitate towards they're 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 quite sort of wholesome values and and certainly at my time at hsbc we sponsored a lot of rugby as you know we've talked about the sevens ad nauseam which was more of an experiment i guess for the modern game which i'm not sure has been an entire success as yet but we'll see but we did sponsor um in 2009 and 2013 the british and irish lions tour to australia or to south africa first and then to to australia and i can tell you i mean it's no real secret that at a time when the financial service industry was going through hell uh, with 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 the uh, global financial crisis, part of the brief of doing the South Africa um, tour was to remind um, the the moneyed classes and the corporate classes that HSBC was very much open for business and was a a business that was built on integrity and values. And if you then take your top five hundred clients and you listen to the likes of. Willie John McBride or Gareth Edwards or Gavin Hastings, all these people who have worn the lion's shirt and the pride and the honour and also the kind of skullduggery, but then mixed with kind of bonhomie and friendship. It was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. And that, I think, may be part of the problem, is that because people have relied on this extraordinary spirit and ethos that the game has, that they have perhaps not looked, particularly at the club game, that there's been a kind of a muddle of of the real value of rugby. You know, club rugby has never been hugely supported. The, the attendances, I think, for Premiership now are about eleven thousand. It's not it, nowhere near football. Nowhere near at all. Ten times <laughs> women's football. <laughs> well, this is true, um, and so and it only went professional twenty five years ago. And I think that a lot of people thought that it was bound to be a success because they thought of Twickenham and Cardiff and Lansdowne Road and Murrayfield and Loftus Versfeld and all these great big uh, cathedrals where the global game was played, the international game, which is the beating heart of the spirit. And that's where, of course, the money uh, is and still is. You know, the, the RFU, the, the Rugby Football Union and the French uh, Rugby Union, the FFR, are incredibly wealthy. But it hasn't been passed down and the structure was never properly sorted. And you've got yet another sport where the governance isn't quite right. And it is that finds not the itself- point, Giles, is it, the yeah. gov- is it not the governance? I because think so. all, all the elements are there. 
the revolution and, and sp- had the revolution happened in 1995 and they'd done what would have probably been impossible which was to deconstruct the whole system and build it from the ground upwards saying this game needs to go professional it may have been become a, an absolute monster and i think it, you're right i think it still can with a world cup happening in in the usa in i think it's in 2031 um it, it, it's got tons of potential but it may fail because the governance and the way the hierarchy and how many sports have got this problem is that they can't get out of them. They, they get in the way of themselves all of the time. And it's a, it's a, it's a shame because as a sport, as a spectacle, the athletes are brilliant. The spirit is brilliant. People who go on lions tours as, as fans have genuinely the best two or three weeks of their lives. I've, done three as an amateur and two as a sponsor and I can't remember any of them so um, they're they're all good so it's a very interesting time Roger you well to pick it up but Giles you know like this is what caught my eye this week Um, I don't know who this person is and I'm not really sure where the Rugby World Cup sits in the the hierarchy of governing bodies in rugby, forgive me, I really should know that, but I find it all very confusing. But who is this chap, Claude Atcher, uh, who <laughs> on Monday was suspended by the French sports minister uh, as they found his management style quotes evidence of a deep social malaise within the organisation. I mean, what's going on in rugby, Giles? Well, well, let me tell you about Claude Asher, and I probably have to have my lawyers present because I'll probably say something I shouldn't. So protect me, or just, or just cast me into late coma in a couple of weeks when we all when we all meet there. Claude Asher was a uh, was a rugby player who played in the in provincial club rugby, um, and was known and feared as um, one of the hardest and. Um, I'm going to struggle to use the word dirty, but let's call it dirty rugby player. And he was feared. He didn't reach the highest heights, but my God, he, there are people who talk about Claude Ache as a player. And he went into the whole business and commerce side of sport. And I first met him, gosh, back in 1995 or something like that, because I had a client, it was a beer client, that wanted to sponsor the Six Nations. Um, I was working agency side in those days. And... A beer brand, for those who know French law, the loi vin means that there are no alcohol sponsors in France anywhere in sport or any any sponsorship. But this chap called Claude Ache, who worked, I think, for an agency, had come up with this cunning ruse, which was to put perimeter boards on the other side of the stadium in France from where the TV cameras were and then put TV cameras on the other side so that you'd have two feeds and that therefore you'd be able to have this beer beer brand, quite a famous beer brand, as the title sponsor of the Six Nations. And he told me this in the grottiest cafe in about the 7th or 8th arrondissement. And the handshake (laughs) he gave me, I just knew that if I was going to... I would not have survived my job. This was not a straightforward deal. Fast forward, gosh, 2014-15, I go and have lunch with uh, Brett Gosper, who at the time is head of yeah. World Rugby, who's played his rugby in France and has been a guest on this yes. show. We know Brett and love him very much. And there was Claude Ache. And <laughs> the difference was he'd clearly had a whole new haircut and a new set of 
bottom and top teeth because the teeth I met in 95 <laughs> were the products of a, a lifetime of club rugby and didn't look particularly straight. <laughs> and this new bloke, he looked like a chat, a chat show host. <laughs> And he had just been made. Um, he just been made head of uh, the, the bid, I think, for the for the, the Rugby World Cup of France, which they went on to win. And um, there isn't a person in rugby who has come across Claude Hachet who will be remotely surprised but by what what's is, happened to what him. What does deep social malaise mean? I mean, what what, what is? <laughs> <laughs> I've heard a lot of stuff, but I've never heard a description like that. Obviously, I don't know, but I mean, anyway, I mean, all I know is if you look at his CV, and I think it was profiled in quite a lot of the media, he's been a consultant for for, for quite a lot of people within rugby over the years, including a time with uh, the uh, Singapore Rugby Union, who I knew back in the day when Sevens was going there. I'm That's not sure the film of the rugby world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how many times he came to Singapore, and I'm pretty certain I know he didn't do very much. So I'm not surprised. <laughs> I'm now probably going to have to uh, get the FBI to give me a complete sort of go into some sort of witness pre- uh, protection programme because. <laughs> it sounds like Charles, <laughs> just a new haircut and some new teeth, you'll be fine. You won't recognise him. You won't recognise him. There's only one person in the world that I've met who's got bigger hands than Claude Ache, and that is Bill Beaumont, who is chairman of World Rugby, who is the so, uh, England so captain in 19. The government's hand, rugby is a hands I mean, thing. These, these hands, that, I mean, you would not want to be on the receiving end of a Claude Ache smack, and maybe that is the social malaise we're talking about. <laughs> no, it's deep social malaise. Deep, deep social malaise. Social, <laughs> an uppercut. Grant, you hang around with a lot of people that talk about deep social malaise. What do you understand by that? I, I hang around with a lot of people that cause it, Rog. Never mind, talk about it. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know what they mean by that. It's, it's, a, it's a very, it's, you know it's a euphemism for something. That's all I'll say. Yeah, I'd like to know more. If anybody Someone's in the listeners uh, n- knows what's going on there, uh, you know I love this stuff. I've got a lot of curiosity to find out what deep social malaise well, means. Right, I dare say a couple of world-class phone calls and Giles will have an answer for you by next time. Hey, listen, um, just before before our guest joins us, uh, Giles, I had to ask you uh, the latest um, stuff coming out of the Live PGA Tour uh, conflict. What are your thoughts? Obviously, Rory, the poster child for the PGA Tour, did a magnificent job in the Tour Chat. I mean, that was that could not have gone better for the PGA Tour. Um, his comments were very uh, good, I think, in the in the heat of the of the win. But now we've got the PGA uh, Wentworth this week, where there's obviously 18 live golfers. I think 17. Martin Kimes dropped out because he doesn't want to play where he's not welcome. Um, and, you know, you can tell before the event there's an awful lot of uh, bad feeling on, on both sides, I think. What, what, what do you make of it all? Well, my position is still the same, and it isn't hindsight a great thing. So, it's, it, yeah, had, had, had we been in this position six months ago, you would have urged the powers that be in the traditional PGA Tour and DP World Tour to have um, made peace with, with, with Liv and with the um, PIF and to try and find a way of working together because this sort of muscling between the two camps and the players now that are caught up with it is, I mean, the spectator loses out, although it is quite, it's entertaining for us to be able to watch golf tear itself. Not a par, but it's, it's muddling. It, it was also interesting that Dustin Johnson uh, won in quite spectacular form and quite a lot of the media now, the golf journalists are 
of sort of pulling back a little bit from their dislike or distaste, perhaps, of, of Liv and, and talking about, well, some good golfers being played here. There are some good golfers here. So let's not just, our job is not to pillory it. After all, Liv is the second most powerful tour in world golf now, like it or lump it. It, it may be a breakaway and a rebel, but in terms of the players, I, I, it does stick in my uh, craw a little bit that um, seeing Tiger and Rory parade themselves as a sort of the salvation of 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 golf and so they are they are both loyal and they know what the PGA tour has done for their career particularly tiger i mean god every player in the world should really be thanking two people tiger woods for getting them to the top and phil mickelson for for the disruption and i think you talked about that on another show but it does stick in my craw that a um Greed is only relative, and I've seen greed from some of the golfers who now talk about this sort of purity in the game uh, at an extraordinary level. But also that both, well, quite a lot of players on the PGA Tour who do quite well out of the PGA Tour because they've got business deals with them. So it's in their interest to support it. And I just feel it's all become, golf to me has become kind of quite sullied, and I'm becoming more and more supportive of Liv and if they can get it right in terms of the product and if they can get some of the, their, their comms absolutely right and talk about heritage, legacy and properly growing the game um, rather than just a player who's got a, a wheelbarrow full of cash, um, this one is over. And I, I feel very sad because one of the things is that hasn't been widely reported is a lot of the big international events of which I was responsible for one, the HSBC champions in, in China, which was a world golf championship and a top 10 event in the world, um, looks to be on its way out. I don't know if it's on its way out officially, but it just certainly doesn't have much place on the, on the tour and on the calendar. And I may be wrong on that. So, America seems to have gone very insular. Well, that's, that happened in the time of Fincham in 15, 20 years ago. Um, the international game seems to be a bit trashed, and I hope it's going to be good at Wentworth. And Liv is be- continuing to sign up players. So this, um, I'm afraid, I know for people on the podcast who may not be golf fans, but this soap opera ain't done yet. I have to say, um, Charles, I'm I'm quite, I'm surprised at those comments, and I think I should probably get a reaction from the Cheshire Cat or Roger Mitchell, as he's otherwise known. <laughs> Seeing this smirking away as you said you were siding with Liv, Rog, Rog, what are your thoughts on it? All? Oh no, I, all I would say is is this: I always talk about the status quo and and, and um, the people that were running golf. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, the American chap, Jay, what's what his name? Him? Monaghan, yeah. Monaghan. Um, Jay Monaghan uh, has done more in eight weeks than he's done in 18 years or however long he's been in that job. I'm a great believer in destructive capitalism because it shakes people up that are complacent and they're not doing their job for their members. He's meant to be representing those players. As far as I can see, they've done better in the last eight weeks, the remaining the remaining ones in the PGA Tour than they did for the, the previous 10 years. So uh, for me... You know, in the debating chamber, um, that's my case for the, the proposition. All right. Well, gents, uh, we have our guest waiting to join us. So, Giles, why don't you uh, introduce the fine young man who's going to be chatting with us now? Yeah, our guest this week is someone I know um, you won't have heard of. Um, by day, he is a business um, intelligence analyst for Alex and Partners, and he's making strides in his early career on, on the corporate ladder. But at the tender age of 
just 25, he's, I think, achieved an incredible and very, very rare victory in, in one of the most historical sporting events in the world by, winning, by owning the winning horse, and this is Palio de Siena, de Siena excuse me, which is so revered in Italy um, and something that is rarer than hen's teeth that, that he's been able, to, been able to achieve. Even more remarkable because he's been born and raised and educated in the UK uh, initially and then got a degree from, from NYU. Um, so how on earth has this happened? And if you read the CNE's media, you'll know this boy's name because he's been everywhere since the, the, the race, but clearly in other parts of the world hasn't. So with Rog particularly, who is uh, our re- resident Italian, he's been urging us to get uh, Theo Westerman onto the show because we're intrigued. Not just what is the Palio, but how did he get involved? And... What is the story of the 2022 Palio de Siena? So we just had to get him on. I have to say, this is, this is in the very top echelon of my bucket list of events to go to. So I'm, I'm up for this conversation. I can't wait to do it. So let's, uh, let's invite Theo in to join us. Theo, it's lovely to have you on the show. I think you've just come back from, uh, from Italy, where you've probably drunk your body weight in wine after celebrating <laughs> what was an extraordinary um, victory. Um, firstly, from all of us, many, many congratulations Absolutely. on being the, the winning owner of a, of a horse at the Palio. We just can't believe it. Yeah, no, me either. I suppose that's why I drank so much red wine, just to sort of make <laughs> sure that it was still really true when I woke up the next day. And it turned out it was. Um no, I mean, an absolutely incredible thing. And thank you so much for having me on, on, on the show. Well, let's get straight into it because we've got many listeners of this show and they, they may have been to Siena. They may well have uh, walked around the beautiful city, but they may not know um, much more about the Palio than maybe featuring in a James Bond movie recently or maybe the Netflix documentary from six or seven years ago. Just give us, because I know you are a real student of, the, of this event and, and something that you have spent a lot of the last few years really studying. Just tell us and tell our listeners a little bit about what is the history of the Palio? Why, why is the Palio what it is? And, and, and just give us some colour. Yeah, sure. So I suppose the best place to start is where is Siena and from all that, the Palio follows. So Siena is a, is a town of about 30,000 people an hour south of Florence that's a walled medieval city. Barely anything has changed from when the Palio first started, but the Palio itself has changed quite a lot. So it is fundamentally a religious festival. Um, it is a religious festival that happens twice a year that is, that is to give thanks to the Virgin Mary. And that's what it is at its core. And it's called a party, but it is a religious festival. And so when the Palio first began, it was not a horse race as you see today in any shape, sense or form. It was a bull killing competition. And so it eventually evolved from a bull killing competition into a bull running competition where it would run through the streets. That then changed again after they worked out that bull runs were a little bit uh, chaotic and they moved it to horses. And so the first incarnations of the Palio, as we sort of know it today, it was a race through the town that was eventually banned and turned into a race around the square uh, because the Pope turned up. So they changed everything for the Pope. Uh, and that was about 546 years ago, as we know it today. And from there, <laughs> you have uh, the three laps. From there, you have the Tufo being put down four days in advance. Um but it is the most incredible 
uh, culmination of community um, and religious ecstasy to a certain to a certain level um, because of the people. Coming back to the community aspect, back when Siena was a republic that used to fight Florence pretty much every decade, uh, or Arezzo, or Pisa, or Luca, they basically hate everybody around them. Uh, <laughs> when Siena had a republic and it formed an army, you wouldn't want to be fighting it next to people who you didn't know. So you'd want to be fighting next to people who you did know. And that happened to be the people who you shared the same craft as. And so these were the people who you lived next to. And that's where the idea of the contrada or the districts comes from in, in the Palio in Siena. So you have these 17 contrada as they are now, but it didn't used to be 17. It used to be a few more. Uh, but by the very nature of it, some of them went extinct. Population levels declined. There stopped being marriages and children being born into each of these teams. And so they slowly died. So you do have a lot larger contradas than others. You do have some that are a few hundred people and others that are a few thousand. So there is a huge difference in the size of these communities, but they are fundamentally communities, probably unlike anything we see in Western Europe at the moment, which is deep, meaningful family connections, um, where it is viewed as a big family and everybody knows each other. And there is sort of these bonds that, that you sort of only dream about. I mean, I think that there was a little bit of a renaissance of that in the UK, especially around sort of coming out and clapping during COVID for the NHS. But I think we've seen that die off pretty quickly. But in Siena, there is uh, an amazing sense of community that drives the, that drives the party, that drives the palio. Um, and so you see it throughout the year. They don't just come together as a community for four days. It is 365. Um, so they hold enormous dinners weekly in order to raise money, but also to bring the community together. There are social housing aspects, um, social support. Um, it, I think it was the idea that sort of started the, the big community in the UK and sort of that idea that happened around the financial crisis of trying to, to build a bigger, stronger, more communalised Britain. Um, but it's sort of fallen away now. But, but it still remains very, very strong in Siena. Theo, uh, let, let me come in. Uh, that's one of the best explanations yeah. of the palio I have no ever heard. I have ever heard, and I'm talking about Italians as well. So um, the first thing I want to say, because I've heard you speaking and doing interviews there, and um, the first thing I want to get people who are listening to this to understand is that um, you're a very young man. You come from a certain culture and upbringing in England, but you have utterly um, uh, inserted yourself into that culture. You speak the language really well. You've got uh, the Tuscan accent. You know, I don't know if, it, you know, like, I, I, I don't know how you did that because that's a, a hard accent to pick up. Um, and, you know, I saw you doing those interviews with 10 journalists around you and you were like taking one after the other and they were trying to trip you up a little bit. And, you know, what I, what I want to ask you is how does that all happen? Because like, take us to day one that you put feet in Italy you don't know what's going on. You maybe don't know that. And, 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 and explain to us how you go from that day one to what we're hearing now, which is total command of the situation. What, what happened? I, I think that's very generous to say total command. 
Um, <laughs> but but it is it is a case of throwing yourself in the deep end and, and sort of experiencing very sh- steep learning curves at all levels. Um, so my whole involvement with with the Palio sort of begins back in 2010. Very lucky to have my parents buy a place just outside of town. Um, and from there, it all sort of spiraled and a lot of things happened that were a little bit coincidental, but have all ended in the most incredible moment, basically. So we buy the house, um, you know, trying to do up a, a, a pretty rundown uh, Italian villa. You have to hire an architect who knows what they're doing. Um, and we got incredibly lucky um, picking a, a guy called An- Andrea Milani, who, who is a very accomplished architect in his own right, but is also or was a member of one of the Contrada. And he was not just a member, but he was a lieutenant. And I'll come back to, to the significance of that. <laughs> so when he came to look around the house um, and obviously, you know, pitched to my parents, we, they, my parents had seen maybe three or four different architects and they'd all concentrated on, on just speaking to my parents. But Andre was the first one who recognised that, that this was going to be a house that was for the entire family and for the entire family for a long time to come. And basically begun explaining to me and my brother, I was age 14, brother was age 11, about this amazing horse race. Um that took place in the town and he was incredibly knowledgeable about it and as any 14 year old boy is sort of seeing horse races and seeing the flags and seeing all of that sort of stuff really really inspires you to to ask a load of questions so began my learning with him went and saw my first palio in august 2010 uh that then kickstarted it even more because Andrea's team won the Palio while he was a lieutenant in the Contrada. It also then turns out that it, it is the horse that was trained by my now trainer. So another coincidence sort of picks up, who is the brother of our architect. So that is a little bit of the framing of this. So 2010 happens, a house is being renovated. Uh, I remain asking loads of questions of this architect who we're constantly flying backwards and forwards to Siena to go and check on the progress of the house because Italian builders are Italian builders, and I'm sure you know that, Roger. Uh, You've got to stay on top of it. Um, but, you know, asking more questions every time, another question. Well, what what if this happens? Um, how do they pick the 10 horses? You know, asking those questions that naturally follow whenever you start to to begin to begin this journey and it does take you a hell of a long time to, to get involved properly. So to sort of fast forward that a little bit more, 2010 happens, 2016, I go to university or I think I'm about to go to university in the States. When I come home late one night on my gap year, uh, as a classic public school boy, as I'm sure you'll take the mickey to an email from NYU saying, are you ready for Florence? And I think, Oh, you've clearly had a bit of a dream. No, they've probably sent this email to the wrong person. But no, I wake up the next morning and I reread my email and it says, nope, you're very definitely going to Florence. Uh, so I spent my first year of university in Florence learning Italian, but also by the fact that it was a four-day school week, I would spend three days uh, of the week in Siena and sort of use my connection with Andrea to get to know some of the guys in Siena and begin to pick up that Tuscan accent, which is basically formed by losing all inhibition of speaking Italian and speaking with Italians who do not speak English. 
So you pick up the hand yep. gestures from not being able to, yep. to, to do any of the tenses and from picking up it up from them. And you lose all inhibition of making mistakes because you've had about a, a bottle of red wine uh, when you're sort of doing a, a language exchange, uh, basically. So, you know, you go out for dinner with, with a group of 10 or 15 Italians inevitably one of their fathers would turn up at dinner and say, why the hell aren't you studying? And then they all point at me and say, well, I'm actually learning English. And I'd say, well, yeah, yeah. And they, the, the parents would say, well, yeah, are they really learning English? I'd say, yeah, his English is very good. He, we're waiting for him in London and sort of begins this exchange in 2016. And so that's how I became very embedded within one of the teams, within the contrada that, that our architect is from. Um, and I'm not baptised in it, but that's another matter. Um, You're not baptized in it, no. I'm not baptized in it, so you have to but be the horses. The, the horses. So, so I will come on to that, and that okay. is. So the horses are drawn by lottery into each team, which they will go into. But I will explain the mechanism of the four days after I've sort of finished telling you about how I picked up the accent and sort of the learning curve. Because so 2016 happened. I spent that year in Florence. It's now 2017. Um, and the Palio documentary has come out. My father has seen that there is another foreign owner and he thinks, why not? We love the race. We've been going to it for six, seven years at that point. Uh, why the hell not buy a horse? Moreover, our, our, our architect's brother is a trainer who lives next door to us. So the search begins to find a Palio horse. The other trigger for this was I'd spent some time in Italy and so thought that I could speak to the trainer, which is eventually how I ended up becoming the director of racing for the family, as we like to joke, because we have three horses now within the family, uh, two of which are mine, one of which is my brother's. Uh, and my brother doesn't speak any Italian, but we all want to ask questions. And so since I was the only one who spoke any, any semblance of Italian when we first bought the horses, I was the one who had to ask all the introductory questions. And then I was the one in the same way as that I fell in love with the Palio itself by asking questions of our architect. I fell in love with the horse racing aspect of it, trying to understand the mechanism, which is about getting horses selected and trying to win it as an owner or as a director of racing for, for the family. So it, it really does spiral. And it is a case of you just need to, how you pick up Italian and, and the deep Tuscan accent is you just spend enough time out there listening to it and sort of not learning off of Duolingo and not learning off of off of classical. Was it was it a girl involved tale? Tale was it a girl involved? Uh, no comment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's a very interesting thing because you can, it's re, it's a really good introductory point to girls because you teach them English and they teach you Italian. But I won't I won't I won't tell any tales. So, so Theo, if I may, let, um, let's go back to your 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 August two thousand ten first experience of the Palio. Now, at this point, you've you've asked the questions, you've you've kind of understood what it is, perhaps. What does it feel like to be there to see it? Because, I, as I said to the guys before we had this conversation, this is this event has been at the very top of my bucket list to sporting events in the world that I want to go to. Everyone says they want to go to the Super Bowl. For me, if you could drop me to any event in the world, it would be the Palio. Um, so, so just describe what it's like being there, whereabouts you were um, physically to watch the race and, and what you made of it all. 
So I'd say really interesting that you mentioned the Super Bowl because I think if anything was the antithesis of the Super Bowl, it would be the patio. Yes, yes, I agree. Uh, it doesn't move. Uh, the money involved is there is no sponsorships. Uh, they are totally anti-commercial in every sense of the word, or some people are. But and I'll, I'll come to that in a bit. But uh, we were we were within uh, the we were we were in a window. So for context. It is like having a horse race in the middle of Canary Wharf if there was an open square in Canary Wharf. You're surrounded by skyscrapers, definitely not as tall as once in Canary Wharf, but it is an enclosed square that has very tall buildings overlooking it. And you have the sea of 30,000 people in the middle, people around the outside, and then every single window is rammed full of people looking out onto the onto the campo, onto the piazza. So watching from there with my parents, we had quite an interesting viewpoint, not necessarily one of the best ones, as you'll come to find out. The closer you are to the start, the more important and the better the view. So Grant, when you come, we'll, we'll try and set you up as close as possible. Um, but we would sort of had a, quite a bird's eye aerial view of the race, looking down, seeing some of the intricacies of the start. Amazing. But more importantly, being able to see the angles at which they took the, the San Martino and the San Casato curves, which are, which are probably the two, well, the two tightest corners in horse racing globally. Uh, they're basically hairpin bends with mattresses at one end, um, and wooden blocks at the other. So you do have to get rounded or, or you're in a world of trouble. Um, but the pace at which they go round and you sort of work out that they're not, they're not with saddles. It's all bareback. Um, horses running round, riderless. Sort of at the same time, I'd asked all these questions, but I didn't really understand it. And you don't understand it for a bit. You probably have to see two or three. But the thing right. that you do get and the thing that is deeply, deeply addictive is the adrenaline rush. Because, yes, the race will last a minute and 12 seconds north, north of. Um, but the build-up and the tension in the sort of 30 minutes before the race starts and that rope drops is, if you could bottle it... it it would sell for millions on the black market because it is such a it is such a a, a concentrated version of adrenaline. Um, and you you know, sort of coming out of the pandemic, I was stood there in July and watching the race without a horse in it, and sort of thought, how would I feel about watching the race when I didn't have a horse running for the first time in in three palios? And I so I had to sort of take myself back because I could feel my heart beating and that I had to tell myself to breathe otherwise I was gonna probably pass out just from the adrenaline and just sort of how, working out how much I missed it but it is a watching it for the first time was it was a little bit more of an understanding but you do have to watch a few races and you do then have to ask questions and you do have to like you know microanalyze the race next to someone who knows what they're talking about and it's a lot of, you know, you can go into that Sky Sports Monday Night Football level of analysis with this stuff, sort of asking, well, why is he at this position on the road? Why did he take this angle on the corner? And, and slowly you're, you're learning of, of how to take each corner, how to start the race in the right way, how to, how to make, the, make the micro inches count up to, to equal a victory. 
takes it takes more than one race to sort of understand but it still remember going back to watching that first race and you know obviously very helpful that the team that we were morally and emotionally invested in won and seeing the outpouring of emotion from Andrea sort of running along the track was was just magnificent so let's just finish off the how you got uh to, to the point of 22 I, I want to get to 22 in a yeah. second but I'm just keen to sort of get 2016 happens your your father decides to get properly involved you get properly involved and you start to learn take us through quickly then the, 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 the because obviously there was covid there were there are things of j- just that final timeline we know you're now you're now in your brain is wired into the palio you've got the opportunity to buy a horse how do you buy a horse how, how does that happen Good question. So, you, frankly, we, we put initially, and I think this is a, you know, you sort of see what's happening with Todd Bowley and Chelsea, and it still remains to be seen if that's going to work out. But you've got to hire an expert. And so we put our, our money in the hands of our trainer uh, or, or our, the brother of our architect, who was a trainer, um, and told him, go forth and buy what you think could be winners. Um, so we bought two horses. The first was from Sardinia, a horse called Ungaro. And the second one was a horse called Violenta, who is the one who's just won the Palio. Um, and to be honest, I wasn't that involved the first time. Um, but I did have to go to, to Rome to see that it was in fact a horse. And if it, if I liked the look of, of her, um and the answer was yes sort of fall, fell in love immediately upon seeing uh violence of the horse that, that's just won um so basically demanded that she be put in my name and harry could have ungaro um but then going and sort of dealing with with the italian horse market is a very interesting world indeed because you don't see there was, yeah you meet some very interesting people and you know everybody's got google and uh sort of having every article that mentions your name saying son of financial magnate which is simply not true but they like to they like to make a lot out of it means that the prices do go up so if you're a foreigner you've got to be very very hard at negotiating and you know i've i've been very lucky to be able to pull out of a deal where i was gonna have my pants pulled down due to a due to a vet's a vet saying that there was a problem but I think it is all, you know, about that learning curve and being given the potential to, to go and learn on the job a bit, but also having people around you who, who will give you the best advice that they can. Uh, so that's so how you buy a horse is, is, or how I now buy horses, is I study a lot. I look at every race that happens. I look at the bloodlines. Uh, I, do, I just do a phenomenal amount of research. I mean, we're currently in the market at the moment looking for another one. So... I'm sort of waiting a call for my trainer sort of in the next sort of 40 minutes to sort of discuss a few options uh, and how to best go about it. So we'll bring him on the show. Be, if he calls, don't be shy. We'll be, we'd be delighted to hear from him. <laughs> he's, he's a good guy, but he only knows a very, very little English apart from yes, slow, slow, and very good. I mean, that's, that's literally it. Well, he get on fine with Roger then that's about his, uh, his extent as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that that would be very interesting, Teo, to, to to have a guy like that on. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, um, a mare is unusual for a palio horse. Is that correct? But you you went for a mare. 
Yes. No, so the... There are no stallions in the palio. There are they're all geldings if they're if they're boys. And so we were running against um, nine males this year um, and beat them all and have now had a horse crowned queen of the square. But it it is slightly more rare for a for a female horse to win win the palio. But at the same time, it does give you a huge advantage going forward, which is if you do have a palio winner who's female, you can then breed from her. And so that is going to be the the aim of sort of the next few years when she is done, is to create a bloodline and sort of go off of off of off of her and, and create a race as as they like to say in Siena. So so that'll that'll hopefully be the next step. So Theo, um, I'm fascinated by the the baptism. You touched on it, Rog, Rog touched on it. You said you were going to come back to it, and I'm, and I'm dying to hear this story because it it's one of the most Italian things I can think of when I, when I heard about this aspect of the race, I just thought it's so poetically beautiful that it can only have happened in Italy. So, so talk a little bit about that, what it looks like, how it came about, um, and what that must be like to to witness. Yeah. So, um, we were speaking to the vet who won the palio with us uh, last weekend, and he said that Jake Almaktoum had said to him that he felt that the Palio was the most beautiful horse race because in no other race in the world is a horse blessed in the church with the jockey for the people. It doesn't run for the owner. It runs for the people. And it is a religious act. It is a religious race. And that's very, very important to remember. And that's why they bless the horse. Um, and so what happens is if the Contrada church is big enough, you will have as many members of the Contrada as they can fit into the, into the church and stand in silence as a blessing is put upon the horse and the jockey. Um, you have women crying because it's, it is an incredibly emotional moment. Uh, it's a micro service. It's sort of three or four minutes long, but it sort of culminates in a word, in a few words, which is, go and return a victor via torna vincitore which for me is just the most beautiful thing after they do the sign of the cross and they spray holy water on it the priest will shout at the horse come back a champion and so if your horse does if if you do win the palio after the race the palio moves back into the contrada and they sing a thank you to uh, to the madonna uh, saying thank you for bringing us this victory. Thank you for making us return champions. Thank you for giving us victory over our enemies. Um, but it's just the most incredible moment. But it is a very uh, difficult thing to get into the church to see, just due to the, the, the how sacred it is for the people in, yeah. in that team. Now, now do, do they do they contractors literally think of other contractors as enemies? You know, it's an interesting choice of words because obviously the, the conflict in and around towns between contractors, the Sienese versus the Florentines, the Tuscans versus the Umbrians. I mean, there is so much conflict in Italy. It's 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 magnificent, and I just I just love this idea that you know your friends and neighbours are your sworn enemies. Yeah, so I mean, this comes back to the to the military aspects of what the Palio is. It, it's life and it's war. I mean, you've got to have someone to concentrate your mind against at, the, at a certain at a certain level. Um, so, so Contradas have deep running, uh, proper battles. 
they started probably hundreds of years ago. Some people have forgotten why they hate their neighbor, but they hate them nonetheless. Uh, back in sort of the 80s, there were tales of uh, literal pitched battles in the streets of, of sort of mobs of sort of teens running through, beating up people from other contradas. After the race today, contradas will fight each other in the square if something has happened. Uh, if someone has closed off another off of another horse, if if one horse or one jockey or one contrada is seen to be a protagonist, another contrada will have will fight the other the other team's representatives, and so you have this melee of people, basically lining up on the track, uh, windmilling for lack of a better word, and it's sort of probably the closest to a reenactment that you actually get in 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 full force uh, anywhere in the world without weapons. But it, it's all fists. It's brilliant, but it, it's also, it sort of displays how much they wear this passion. It is a deep, yeah. a deep hatred of, of the other. Teo, uh, let me ask you this. This question here is our sponsor question, uh, the fabulous Sports Digita uh, software presentation uh, conquering more and more of the European sports landscape. Uh, this is what I want to ask you. I'd like you to explain the Byzantine Machiavellian goings on that happen in the lead up, the deals that are done, the betrayals that happen. It's like Game of Thrones, you know, the Red Wedding, something like that. I mean, give us an eye, because like, you're right. I've seen at the end of the Palio, you know, uh, jockeys being attacked because people say they've thrown the race because they've got been gotten to. You know, like it's everything you can imagine from the Sopranos to whatever. I mean, how does this, and, and I'm not going to call you a public schooling because you look Italian to me at this point. So how does a young man, never mind English, Italian, how does a young man insert himself into this, heavy, heavy conspiracy world uh, and, and, and manage to manoeuvre. I'm fascinated by that tale. It really helps to have a good horse. Otherwise, people wouldn't come and speak to you. So one of the things that's happened, it, just to sort of ex explain why I say, you know, money, money is the thing that makes us dirty. And, you know, money is the reason why there is all this Machiavellian uh, backstabbing and deals. Um, because the Palio is probably one of the few races in the world where you are encouraged actively to bribe um, to win. <laughs> so that could be like what happened in July. So in July, the process for the horses to be picked is they have to turn up for a vet inspection. And so two rival teams decided, without consulting one another, that they wanted a low lottery of horses, an inexperienced lottery of horses. And so what they did is separately, they went and spoke to most of the other owners of horses and offered them money to stay at home in order to um, equal the playing field, allow their money to go even further, aside from just paying them off to stay at home, to make their money go further when it came to buying off other teams, paying for the best jockeys that they could to try and control it. In August, um, they tried to do the same thing again, but there was such a big palaver over what had happened in July that uh, the mayor basically said, if you do this again, 
there will be serious consequences, not for the contraders, but for the owners who kept their horses at home. So this led to what happened in July, uh, the most brilliant rumour going round, which is that they had come and spoken to me and they'd offered me 20 and I'd said no, and that they needed to offer me 50 and that they'd come back and offered me 50 and I said, no, I want 100. And then at that point, they worked out that I was trying to see how much they had. Uh, I was taking them for fools. But they, in all honesty, they never came and spoke to me because I would have turned it down out of hand and they knew that. But they did come and speak to my trainer. And so what we like to say in our stable is don't pay me to stay away, pay me to win. Huh. But all those deals that go on, there is serious amounts of money being thrown around here. Um, it is all community-led, community-funded. So those dinners that I talked about, every margin that they make goes in the, into the communal pot. People give donations. People give donations if they lose. People give donations if they win. But it's all over a flag at the end of the day. So while they're trying to control this, they're desperately trying to control destiny and trying to get in the way of it. And it is impossible to do so because at the end of the day, the 10 horses will go into one of these teams and one of them has to win. You're just trying to make sure it's you and not your enemy. And so they pay, they will pay off others to block when you're not even running and you will try everything in your power to buy the start of that race because the start is everything. And if you watch the paleo yeah, that happened in yeah, August, absolutely. if you look at the, the micro detail, yeah. the horse that started it was waiting for the exact moment that my horse was a little bit off foot. And we got really, really lucky that we had such a good jockey who pushed her on in order to take the lead in that race from sort of the first 20 metres and then just held on to that lead. Let's, uh, so let's talk about TTR, the, 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 the jockey. A historic figure, um, a, a, a multi-winner of the, the Palio. Uh, I want to talk to him, uh, talk about him for two reasons, because you need to explain a little bit how the three sides of the triangle work. You've got the owner, you've got the jockey, and you've got the contrada. How did you end up with Titia and uh, running for the Unicorn Contrada? Yeah. So when the 10 horses get picked or chosen from a list of 35, which is done by the 10 captains of the 10 Contrada who will run the Palio that, that time, they will all go into a lottery. So the horse picking is the only thing that is not paid for. And it's the only thing that is truly pure in the Palio. They go into a ballot and it's done on the public square three days before the race happens. And at that point, my horse can go into any of the 10 Contrada picks. In fact, my horse has gone into my friend's rival team and finished second. So I have zero control over who rides my horse and where my horse goes. Uh, the Contrada chooses who the jockey is. But it is also the jockey chooses the Contrada. So with Giovanni... He had a choice of six of the teams that run in the 10 because he's won three and had run one three in a row. Uh, and he has got to make the decision for himself because he gets paid um, to turn up and he gets paid to win. So if he wins, he gets paid a lot more. So he's really got to, he's really got to pick well. Um, and we frankly, as well as the, the, well, the, the contrada did a really good job of, of paying him the right amount to turn up. 
and giving him the right opportunity to ride. So there were rumours throughout the day when the horses got selected for the team that it was going to be another jockey. And then sort of slowly throughout the day, rumours sort of came through that Giovanni hadn't picked a, a place to go. So I thought, oh my God, he could he could come to us. Um, and so we went into the Contrada to, to see the horse with our guests. And it was just as the news had been announced that Giovanni had been picked for, for Leah Corno. Uh, and they were all ecstatic because, you know, there are a few very big jockeys in Siena. Uh, basically, at the moment, there are two uh, with a second sort of fascia of, of another three or four. But really, it's dominated by two at the moment. Uh, but Giovanni really, really has, has the whip hand as it was in terms of being the great the great jockey at the moment but in terms of my relationship with Giovanni Giovanni's ridden my horse once before in 2019 when we made our debut uh, which is always a bit of a free hit for a horse and we'd still finish second which was great um, but in terms of maintaining a relationship with him when he's the big I am you've got to keep people on side and you've got to keep friendly so I wouldn't say we're necessarily friends or weren't friends, but we were definitely very amicable. And now we're definitely friends because we won together. But at the same time, I turned up in the Contrada and he wanted to ask my permission if he could call my trainer to ask a number of questions about how to ride the horse and how to win, um, which ultimately he was very respectful in asking for my blessing to do, which I was more than happy to do. And, and I'm very lucky that it paid off. So, Theo, now let's get us to race day. Let's. Uh, I I can't even imagine the adrenaline and the nerves that you and everybody must be feeling. But just paint quickly the picture of of that day and the moment, and then obviously the build up. And I know that there's a, a moment before the race, etc. And then this just build up as our, our crescendo to to then what happened because it is astonishing. So it was a little bit of a dud to be honest because. The race was supposed to take place on the 16th of August and it got delayed by rain. So I had mentally gotten myself prepared on the morning of the 16th. I'd gone and witnessed the blessing of the horse with my family and was sort of ready to go. Took myself off in town and just needed a little bit of a calm down and a sit and just a reflection on what I thought could happen. And then it started to rain and we had to come back the next day and do it all again. So I had to get myself mentally ready all over again. But you turn up, in town streets are rammed full of people because half of uh, the tourism industry in Italy will descend on Siena. You have uh, the Corteo Storico, which is the, the procession of all the Contradas, all in historic dress um, in the build-up. And you sort of get to your seats probably an hour before the race. And at this point, I'm just a board of stress because I don't want to speak to anybody. I've, we've got 16 or so guests with us who all desperately want to ask questions. And normally I'm fine with that. But when it gets to a certain point, I really struggle. Uh, so my answers keep getting shorter and shorter and briefer and briefer until I just stop answering them. Um, so we were very lucky to have very good seats right, right on the next to the right next to the the tufo uh where basically if what did happen happened i could escape onto the turf and go and run after the horse um but in the build-up you're sort of sat there 
praying, basically, just trying to keep your mind busy, trying to remember to breathe, trying to look cool, trying to to not let it get the better of you and just totally want to bury your head in a bucket of ice water. Um, and minute by minute, it gets closer and closer until all the Corteo Storico has gone off the gone off the turf and it's clear and the police have gone around and made sure everything's clear and you have an empty tufo and uh, you just have a gun go off. There is an enormous gun that goes off before, whenever anything happens really it, it, in the palio that goes off and I stand up and I remember looking across at, at, at the cortile where the horse has come out of. And I, I vividly remember this, not really much after. Um, but for every one of the trial races that happened up, up until the day, which happened in the morning and the night, after the horse has been assigned to the team, Violenta had always been the last one out, always had been the last horse out. And I remember standing up and seeing Violenta come out first. I thought that's a really good sign. It's a really good sign. Uh, and that hopefully first one, first one out, first past the post, and sort of desperately hoping that that, that was going to be the case. And so uh, they're all lined up at the start. We've got a great position on the starting rope. Uh, and I think this race has got to get away quickly. If it, if it goes on for 45 minutes to an hour, that's been our downfall in the past and the reason that we haven't won. Um, and there's one false start. And then I remember thinking, why is he positioned the horse like that? And he'd positioned her side on. And next to him was a jockey who was, it was his first race, who if he'd been sensible, would have put pressure on to try and close off any space up the inside that our horse had. But he didn't. Because of the way that the horse was manoeuvred, he just sort of thought, oh, I'll just give him that space. And we're a little bit back from the line and the running horse starts it, who is frankly our nearest competition, but was in a terrible spot to win the race. And then I see that we're away first and we'd been in that position before with Violenta, where she'd led a race for 99.9% of the race and still lost, which has happened in July, 2019. So I thought, no way that she loses with Giovanni when she'd lost with another jockey. No way, because Giovanni was never in the lead with her. And I remember looking down, and I didn't watch the race. I just counted off the number of times she went past. So I counted off once, keep breathing. Counted off two, keep breathing. And then on the third, I go to open the gate to go out onto the track. Because I'd always had, you know, when you have those moments where you're dreaming about this thing for years and years and years, and you go, I want to be there just after she's won, going absolutely bonkers. And this guy grabs me and says, no, it's dangerous. And I'm screaming at him in Italian, it's my fucking horse. It's my fucking horse. <laughs> how did you say that, Teo? Exactly, I, how did you say it in Italian? Il mio cavallo. Il mio cavallo, il mio cavallo. Madonna maiale, il mio cavallo. Oh no, don't say, don't, don't say that, man. No, no blasphemy. I told you, in that part of the world, they love their blasphemy. <laughs> they oh, blaspheme so much, so much. You know, no, part of it is, don't you know, do that, man. You always blaspheme in Italy. So, so, and 
I just remember going herring off down the track. And it's really, really funny when we watch the videos back because you just see this this guy move from the from the stands, and we got the photographic evidence and videos and everything, which I just love. But these guys are going absolutely bonkers. There's a little jump at a double fist pump, a la Harry Kane, um, and just absolute sort of sheer ecstasy and a little bit of disbelief. Um, but, you know, a bonkers day, an absolute bonkers day that felt like a week, um, but had been sort of six years in the making. And, and Theo, just so we've got some context here, just explain to um, listeners quickly the, the enormity or the rarity, perhaps, of what the Westerman family have done in terms of uh, a foreigner, a jolly foreigner coming to Italy and in 2022 does something at one of the oldest sporting events in the world. Just put the context of where, where, where the Westermans now sit in terms of what, what's happened. Well, we've got the record which I think is the most important thing for me, which is in 546 years as they recognize it, we have the fastest ever paleo time, uh, which is a minute, 12 seconds and 66 hundredths of a second, which I think is just something that you do have to pinch yourself and you say, if you are going to win it, win it fastest. If we only ever win it once and that I have to spend the rest of my life trying to win it again, I hope no one else breaks it. But I can say that for a period, I had the fastest ever horse to win the Palio. Um, and there's been only, only ever one other foreign owner we know of, who is Mark Getty of, of Getty Images, uh, who spent 30 years trying to win it. So we got very, very lucky to do it in our first six years and do it the quickest. So yeah. no, we're, we're ecstatic. Dale, uh, we're coming to the end of this now, but I, I want to broaden it out a little bit. Um, well, first thing I would start with is seeing this, listening to Dale here, um, talk about the dealings that go on in Italy and the backroom dealings. Um, how are people feeling about the Americans owning Serie A football clubs and their ability to deal with that? Um, I I always think that they don't know 80% of what's going on at their club. Um, but that aside, tell, you, you, you're, a, you're a young man from a, a modern generation. I think you're probably still Gen Z just about. Um you you come from a country that is very advanced in its social uh, thinking these days, whereas Siena, and particularly Siena, particularly Tuscany, and particularly Italy, is a, a, a place in the world where a lot of older values are still around from from religion, from I would say very clear gender um, uh, distinctions. Um, how have you found Italy as a young man? How have you enjoyed everything from the food, the wine, the friendship, the bells on a Sunday morning um, and all the, the less pleasant things, the difficulties you have to deal with and um, the lack of organisation, think on your feet? You know, are you going to make your life in Italy or, you know, what's your view about that country as it comes into an election in the next couple of weeks? Yeah, uh, Italy is a very complex place. And I think you've got to look at everything in a microcosm. I think Siena is a very, very special place, but it, it, it's really not as socially advanced. I'd say that, that probably actually Siena, Siena 
it's probably uh, a little bit further on than some places in the, in the south of Italy. But you have to take the good with the bad with all of this sort of stuff. And you've got to realize that everybody else is on their own different trajectory and that some places are just simply less, less globalized than the rest of the world. But Siena used to be a massively global place. It was the place where the first bank ever was. Um, so they, they are or were a globalized place. They are the home of the Renaissance. But in a lot of ways, people tend to look back on that as the good old days when it perhaps wasn't the good old days. Um, and I think it's just, you know, throwing yourself in the deep end, sticking very true to your own values and trying to do the best way you can to, to push things on. So, you know, there is quite a lot of racism. There's a little bit of sex, there's quite a lot of sexism as well. But I think you just have to bear in mind that it's not, it's not England. It's not necessarily um, the most forward thinking place. But it is a place full of amazing people who deep down are not bad people. But it is it is just something that's going to take time to resolve itself, I think, I hope, with a lot of that. And I think the political situation is the political situation. And I think it, it does come to a lot of people are very, you see a lot of the similarities in terms of Brexit in Italy sort of starting to, to rear their heads. So... Um, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic when assistance wasn't coming from the ECB, there was a huge movement that started online with leave the EU, let's do a Brexit uh, that has now faded away. So it, it is a really politically unstable and slightly hypocritical place at times where people only really care about what political politicians say will help them in the next six months because that is the political cycle if you don't deliver in six months they will get you out um but i think it's a little bit of a difficult time to be in italy but it's a difficult time to be everywhere at the moment i think i think you really struggled to find a place that was actually doing quite well well i suspect you'll be back in italy very soon you've probably got more parties and things to, to finish off where to finish off this race i would I'd imagine theo i the BBC have the, their original motto was to inform, educate and entertain. And clearly this podcast is Are You Not Entertained? That's something that Roger took from, from the Gladiator movie from, from way back. Grant really and, more than me. Well, you're both brilliant. Um, I, I think for someone who is, if you'll forgive me, so young to tell the story of your story and also the story of what you're involved with with the Palio, particularly as this is a sports business podcast which talks about being all about fans, about people being entertained by sport. And we are at a time in the world where sport is being disrupted almost everywhere. And to hear about a sporting event that has been happening by and large every year for four or five hundred years and that you have been able to immerse yourself in it, not, not even to immerse yourself, but also to be lucky enough, and those would be your words, to, to, to be victorious um, in 2022, I think for me has been one of the most enjoyable shows that I've had the privilege actually to listen to. Our listeners will know I do tend to, to, to gabble on a bit. <laughs> I've been listening. And for that, I, on behalf of all of us, thank you very, very much for, for giving us your time. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Theo, it was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. I, 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 I have nothing but envy and respect for you, my friend. So congratulations and, and well done. I hope you do it again in 2023. Well, thank you very much. Well, well, we'll look forward to having you out in 2023, hopefully.
Oh, you don't don't say that lightly because we'll, we'll I promise you, we'll we'll shoot shoot we know a guy who knows about <laughs> tickets. So so let me know. Okay. Oh, that was absolutely fabulous. Just just about. I mean, it's just. I, I want. I've I've been in Siena uh, two weeks after the Palio race. That's the closest I've come to it. Um, and it's just there's something about that that piazza, that square. There's something about that place that I just find utterly magical. Uh, well, yeah. Uh, listen, pe- people don't realise this, but you know what you were referring to about local rivalries. Got a name in Italy. It's called Campanilismo. It means that your local town rival who had its own uh, city with the walls, you would attack them, they would attack you. Guelph and Ghibellines, it's the whole history of of the Renaissance in many ways. Uh, Italy is an extraordinary place. Uh, And in Siena, with the Contrade, um, you have got, I guess, the way life used to be, where, you know, your, your few blocks were your village, your own little community, and you became very protective of it. You had your church because, you know, uh, they won't all get baptised in the same church. Uh, those horses, every Contrada will have its own church. And, and you know, the, this, I really love this as well, Giles, because it described a country that um, I feel a great deal of um, identification with, with warts and all, but um, it is a beautiful, beautiful place. And he described it really well. Well, and just to, to wrap the, the show up from the from the top to the, the tail, we talked about the sport of rugby and we talked about the values and why that is pa- possibly the most important part of that sport. As Theo was talking there, I had a real sort of remembrance of the British Lions where the, the four sides who play against each other and war against each other in England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland, and then they come together as the Lions and they become brand of brothers. And it's those kind of values which are the enduring ones. And it's those are the values that that anyone, particularly who is tinkering in modern sports, whether you're the guys that live trying to create a team to play in a league or whether you're doing the 100 and you're trying to create a brand new franchise to, 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 to capture the hearts and minds or the 60. of the fan... Or 60. Remember to capture the hearts and minds of the fans because without them, you are nothing. And you used the word, Rog, and it's spot on. If you don't have narrative, you ain't got a sport. No. But, you know, you know me, I'm not going to let us finish on that um, Hovis ad Type you know, you know, you, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not going to let you do that. Let's remember what the young man said. It is the only sport that actively encourages the bribery of the competitors. Just follow the money. Just follow the money. Ah, uh, dear. Well, gentlemen, it's time to wrap up. Uh, I'm afraid that was. Um as I say, that was just such a huge, enjoyable conversation. Now, thanks to you for listening. Hopefully you've enjoyed that as much as we have. Um, in the meantime, we'll be back again not too far from now, I'm sure, with another conversation. Uh, if you don't follow us already, you'll find us on Twitter at EntertainR. That's the word A-R-E. Uh, you can follow me, should you wish to do so, at T-T-M-Y-G-H. And you can follow me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. You can follow myself... Uh, at RPM Como as in the lake as in the lake gentlemen until next time